0: Hi, I'm Randy Kleiner. And I'm Kaylee Smith Westbrook. As the co founders of Series Fest, we
1: welcome you to Breaking In a Series Fest podcast. In 2015, Series Fest began its mission to champion and empower artists at the forefront of episodic storytelling by providing year round opportunities for creators and industry experts to connect, collaborate, and share stories.
0: We are thrilled to expand our mission with this podcast as we talk to working professionals in television and gain insight, advice, and hear their journey of breaking in.
1: I am so thrilled to welcome today's special guest, Sarah Burgess. She is a New York playwright and screenwriter. Her play Dry Powder won the 2016 Lawrence Hatcher Prize, was a finalist for the Susan Smith Blackburn Prize, and was nominated for an Olivier Award in London. It premiered at the Public Theater in a stunning production, directed by Thomas Kail, starring Claire Danes, John Krasinski, Hank Azaria, and Sanjeev Silva Burgess's additional plays include *Kings* and *Camden Side*, and she now brings her incredible skills to the screen as the showrunner, head writer, and executive producer of the thrilling new FX series *Impeachment: American Crime Story*. This is a special episode recorded from our Series Fest Insiders event as we do a deep dive into impeachment, American crime story. Hi, Sarah. Thank you so much for joining us here at Series Fest and welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm really happy to be here. Thank you. Well, Impeachment, American Crime Story, it's started. You can see the first several episodes on FX. It's releasing weekly. And um, I'm so excited to chat with you about how you came to this story and and chose to approach it. I, you know, I think back, you know, I remember when the scandal broke and it felt to me, it's always felt like this just sort of an absurd time in history. And what I love so much about what you did is you turned it into this really intimate reflection of, of young love and betrayal of ego and ultimately sort of destroyed innocence and loss of identity. And I just think I never thought of that story this way. And, and you've really changed, you know, my feeling on it. And, um, I'm excited to hear kind of how you came about that. So I'd love to go just sort of back to the beginning, you know, what attracted you to write the series? I mean,
0: I, um, it was sort of brought up to me in the middle of, of 2018. Um, I had, uh, that Ryan Murphy and, and Brad Simpson, Nina Jacobson and FX were thinking about doing uh, a season of American crime story about this event. And, um, I actually was sort of weird and evasive about it for a long time. My first instinct was that I felt that story. I felt something that's true, which is frankly people, a lot of people, I think over a certain age, you know, I'm in my like late thirties, but a lot of people who are a teen or older sort of know, know the story. Um, certainly like, People I know in Generation X and Baby Boomer seem quite, um, quite familiar with it. I don't know. I, I I just realized now I'm the kind of person who uses generation titles when talking all the time. I don't know. <laughs> never done that before in my life. <laughs> it's like weird. It's like I'm writing a Newsweek article. Anyway, the point is, I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know that story. It's either political intrigue, um, or you know, Ken Starr versus Bill Clinton, or it's about like sex in the office. And I was just never going to write either of those things, frankly. Um, and I'm not interested in that. Um, I, felt like, like, I felt like that story was, uh, had been told also, you know. What really pulled me in was, and I loved how you described it, was a sort of, I think I now, was a maybe kind of odd approach? Because I got very pulled into the point of view of Linda Tripp. And why would you do something like that? That's the only, only unanswerable question. A lot of other things about this story feel quite clear. We know why people have relationships they shouldn't have. We've all had them. We know why Democrats and Republicans try to take down the other side. We know too much about that and we're tired of reading about it. But I don't know how I would ever answer. I, I was fascinated by, and eventually kind of kind of uh, moved by the loneliness and the frustration and the bottled anger that would lead somebody to do something like that. So what I did was I took American Crime Story and I did kind of turn it into, at least in the first few episodes, a character sketch about this person. And then um, as Monica enters and becomes a major character too, um, a portrait of this confusing and odd office friendship that becomes quite close, but never obviously really close because Linda starts to deceive her. So that's what pulled me into it. And I started writing that late in
1: 2018. I I, I definitely think, I mean, it's so amazing, kind of this sort of radical point of view, focusing on women, you know, obviously both, both Linda and Monica, but also Paula Jones and her, piece in this. And, and, you know, those stories also feel so relevant today. You really see the manipulation, but what you also see in this is manipulation between women, which you see on all different sides, which I thought was a really kind of interesting point of view and take that we, you know, that we don't always see. Um, so what kind of research did you do I imagine a lot since it's such a, you know, again, as you said, it's something we all sort of know, but I feel like we all know a little bit about it. What was your kind of main points of research?
0: First of all, to to your point about the manipulation of women by women, you know, I'm very aware of the fact that like, this is not a story with a lot of whatever heroism or virtue is in in the story is I think located in Paula's desire to write some kind of wrong. And this tragedy of Paula is she's pulled into, um, the, the motivations, the distorted motivations of other people push her into a place she doesn't want to be. And then, obviously, Monica's strength, especially as our story proceeds in the episodes that haven't aired yet, Monica's strength up into this very day is obviously very is in, is is an act of heroism and incredibly inspiring. But I I always I always reject the idea that women have to be depicted as like saints or that if women ran the world there would be like less war. I think that's just not true. Maybe different kind of war, but it, it's actually dehumanizing to me when people want women to be virtuous or attractive or, you know, seeking, a, you know, having, having great motivation. So that was one thing that really, again, drew me into the story, which I, you know, I understand can seem tricky because we are all, there's a natural sensitivity to how women are depicted, but I, um, I feel very committed to that point of view. And it's one thing I love about the story is the full humanity, even of the people who do bad things, you know, um, because we all do bad things. And I, I, I don't know that, that really, again, sort of captivated me as I dug into this and the way that I dug into it was, um, I think I started, there's a, there's a probably what, like 80 books about this event. I read a lot of those. I started by reading a lot that were written in the 90s. Jeffrey Tubin's book, Michael Isakoff's book, um, and then especially Death of American Virtue by Ken Gormley, which is a very detailed account. That really opened me up to the personalities of the major, of like Bill Clinton, uh, Monica, Linda Tripp, and Paula, uh, and Susan Carpenter-McMillan. It you know, really good interviews and a lot of details in those books. Eventually then, of course, you know, this becomes a real crime story um, because federal prosecutors are involved in the FBI. So there's FBI 302s, there's a ton of grand jury transcripts. I spent most of 2020 reading these grand jury transcripts to write episode nine, which is about that. Um, there's the Linda Tripp tapes, um, <laughs> which is hours and hours of one person knowing she's recorded and the other not. And that gives you an incredible window into the way people speak, into what was happening in that relationship. Um, there's the memoirs of Bill and Hillary Clinton. The, you know, there's was an, a, I'm the kind of writer for whom there's really too much research um, and almost everything I can point to in the story. I, I found a lot of the details inspiring. There's one tiny sentence in Chubin's book about how Linda fought with the woman she shared a cubicle with in the Pentagon. And I got so excited about that. There's not like 20 scenes with, <laughs> with Linda and this woman. And so sometimes it's stuff like that, but then sometimes it's the task is really boiling down a ton of grand jury um, testimony into a four minute scene, you know, or whatever. So that, so um, I, I I let myself take in a lot of that. That's why it was a multi-year process. And then of course I had Monica Lewinsky herself eventually speaking to me directly about a lot of the things that happened and giving me notes on how accurate my scripts were
1: or not. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to ask how involved was she in the creative process? And I imagine that must be, I mean, so hard because I'm sure you can't incorporate everything or you have to pick and choose. And obviously this is so personal, so personal to her. You know, how is that process for you?
0: Very scary. I mean, can you imagine? It's like you never I mean, getting a note from like, you know, you and I talked about we both had our association with the public theater, you know, hearing notes, I would meet, meeting with the Oscar Eustace in the library, the public to get notes from him. You know, I was always, exci- you're excited about that, but you always are, a writer can't always see what they're doing. And so, especially with a great tour like Oscar, it's like, you, you know, you there's, there's excitement because you know, it's going to make your play better, but also there's always this sort of fear that you've missed something that's going to, you'll feel shame, frankly, that like you, something doesn't work and maybe you thought, you thought or hoped it did. Um, and getting notes from my producers on this and and from from the network, from Ryan Murphy, you know, always it's always a bit nerve wracking to get notes, um, though. I tend to be a writer who likes them to get notes from the actual person for whom this was a trauma was terrifying uh, at first. read written three episodes when I met Monica. Eventually she did. And she did. She did speak to us a bit, um, came into our writers room once or twice. Um, and then uh, things became very intense as she started reading the scripts. And that's when we, I would have a lot more interaction with her. Um, we, we ended up in a process where Monica would read each script on her own. And then we would meet her, me, Ryan Murphy and our producers, Brad and Nina, and we would go through them page by page. And she would say everything that she thought about every page of the scripts, um, which ended up being, yes, very intense and a little nerve wracking sometimes very emotional, but very, um, really gratifying. And actually, and this is really true. I know it sounds like it's not, but really did sometimes make, she would push me to make her character more complicated. Wow. In the episode that's airing, um, episode four, there's a scene where she pushed me to change this monologue that Monica has about her past to complicate her own behavior. Cause she was like, you know, this is what really happened. People know what really happened to me. And I want you to tell the truth and not, you know, like, don't oversimplify my actions. And I I don't want to skip too much away, but um, so it ended up being enormously gratifying. And, um, and um, I would say she was heavily creatively involved, particularly for the, you know, scenes that she was involved in. But as you say, of course, I never, you never take every note. And that's always a complicated thing, whether it's the head of the public theater or it's producer, um, a Hollywood producer, you know, Monica Lewinsky, it's always a very, or an actor, it's always a very intense thing.
1: Well, and too, at the end of the day, this is still a dramatic interpretation being put on screen. It's not a documentary, so you have to, you know, that pl- I'm sure plays into it, too. But it's just incredible how involved she was and, you know, just helps g- ground it in, in authenticity as well. And you can really see that in the way Beanie plays Monica Lewinsky in, in the series.
0: Yeah, and Beanie was such an ally and partner and I think carrying the, ensuring that what we were doing was doing right by her was something Beanie and I spoke about a lot, you know, and you can really feel that and the the wonderful work that Beanie does in the show.
1: Absolutely. Uh, You know, I was so intrigued by, you know, Linda Tripp, who I, I feel the way that you kind of created such a layered character, you know, I think when I think of her, you know, again, before watching the series, I'm like, she's a villain. You know, I think all all the bad things, you know, here's this person that did these things, but, you know, and and she's got a lot of that, right. She's got attitude. She's entitled. She's moody, but we, we also see a different side of her. I mean, we see her get stomped on. We see her hurt and pain at times and and not that it makes up for the things she did, but, but it gives her some motivation. Um, And I I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that choice.
0: I, I think that if we're honest with ourselves, you know, to work in an institution like the West Wing and to walk in those halls every morning and you're just a secretary and you couldn't go to college and you know you're kind of smart, but you also know you're not like especially attractive and you're pretty much invisible in most rooms that you ever inhabit. You know, I think if, if most of us are honest with ourselves to walk into a big institution and to feel like you belong there is incredibly meaningful. You know, again, you and I spoke about the public. I remember what it was like to walk into the public knowing I was being produced there that gave me a lot, you know? And so I took very seriously, Linda was cast aside. And yes, obviously I, to me, Linda is a, a funny character, which gives me some affection for her. And, you know, you can read a lot of different accounts about Linda's behaviors. as someone who is very good at her job, um, who is sarcastic and funny. Um, and who, but who would sometimes react with anger. You know, I, I don't I think women are entitled to their anger and right? I don't, I'm not gonna, I, I would not, um, I didn't want to sort of shave that off as I wrote the character, you know, this is someone who would react with anger when she felt it. I um I took very seriously how painful it would be to be cast out of that institution. I think if a lot of us are honest with ourselves, that would matter to us too. To feel to feel like you don't matter and to be sort of sent away um to the Pentagon is really the major event of episode 1 is a frustrated bureaucrat moving offices 3 miles, but it means the world to her. And I found I felt her anger in the writing to be real and kind of justified, you know, the show will go into later on events in Linda's life that might make her more sensitive to and more, I think uh, to make her feel more pain around certain issues and certain things. But I just, um, I really, uh, I'm just very obsessed with the sort of, I I was, I really had made an intentional choice to elevate the story of this frustrated middle-class bureaucrat, and, uh, and the story of Paula Jones to the same level as like Bill and Hillary Clinton, you know? They are in more scenes as through a lot of the show and that's intentional, you know? I mean, and I think, you know, and, and to sit with Linda as she's home alone, quiet in her house was an intentional choice because that is, um, that's the thing that often, it, it struck me that the choice to tape Monica was the action of a lonely person. And I really feel that um, watching the show watching Sarah's performance, you feel I think that loneliness. And I think, again, that's, that underlies a lot of behavior and even in ourselves, maybe that we're not proud of. And to me that felt very human, you know? Um, and I, um, I, I was interested in all these different modes of Linda without wanting to add in some, I think, um, false moments that to me might feel false to make her more likable or not. I really reject the imperative to make female characters likable in a different way from male characters. I really reject that um, in my writing. And I felt um, very connected to this character as I was writing her. And, and I, you know, to have great affection for someone who does a bad thing to me is really was um, is a really central part of, for me, of making making the show. While I also understand that she is funny and often, as you say, you know, engages in sort of repellent behaviors, if that makes sense.
1: I know, absolutely. And, and you brought up Sarah Paulson, whose performance is just outstanding it also took me I swear I would stare at her for like five minutes there's no way that's Sarah Paulson and I know she wears a prosthetic but still it's it's her transformation all the way not just physically but vocally and her emotions it's just so so strong did did you write this with her in mind I wrote this with her in mind I knew I always knew that she would play Linda Tripp Amazing, and as a collaborator in in the process at all, or yeah, I mean, I I mean,
0: I wrote. Let me think. I wrote like a probably a bunch of episodes before, like I said before, I even met Monica, and then we, you know, we, there's this weird thing that happened where, um, I mean, it's funny because I, um, I think I met. I met Sarah Beanie independently in early 2020 because we were supposed to start shooting in early 2020, but then everything shut down and I con- continued writing. So when we started shooting, i had written, we'd written through like nine episodes. Oh wow. And then I basically met Sarah as Linda Tripp because of, we shot during COVID. So it's not a normal situation where um, you, uh, yeah, I mean, obviously you're just sort of everyone's meeting and working in very contained, um, secure circumstances. Um, and then, yeah, over the, quite long period of shooting the show, which I think was like, what, like 10, 11 months. Um, it, it, Sarah was a very important partner in working on that character. I think in the, to me, the show is sort of, I know this is, the show in some ways is written, to some degree, Linda Tripp is the author of this crisis because Linda makes it happen. And so th- there's a lot of feeling for me that the show is sort of, feels like it's in Linda's point of view. So uh, to me, Linda is the heart of the show in a lot of ways, which feels appropriate for a story that is uncomfortable and tragic. And sort of and um, and kind of upsetting, and so it was a really important collaboration, I think, for for me to understand the show and understand Linda, and I think also to see the ways that Sarah lent full humanity to moments that even I maybe didn't understand. I don't think I understood until I saw. The, there's these moments, like I think maybe in two, where like Linda like looks down at her her TV dinner, and it is inc- to me is is a. Uh, I think you really feel. Involved in her loneliness in a way that I don't know that I realized when I was writing. It's a moment of acting that's like beyond writing. Um I agree. It's an astonishing performance over and above any transformation. I, I feel to me, it seemed like Linda Tripp really existed as a separate character from, from the actor.
1: Do you think Linda Tripp ever had any remorse? Um, I will do you have like four hours to talk about this? I hope you <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah,
0: I think that Linda Tripp never, um, I mean, I should have mentioned that I, of course, listened to the really great slow burn podcast. Um, I've actually, I've actually asked Leon, the host of that podcast to like get a drink with me. I'm like stalking him in New York. So we actually live near each other. So like, he's going to, he's going to really have to deal with a lot of questions because he met her, you know, when he was, he, he was an episode where he speaks with Linda. Right. And there's a moment at the end of that episode where Linda Tripp always said, Linda always, she always said, she didn't, do, she did a bunch of interviews right after the event, didn't speak to the press, and then she did do slow burn. And she always said, I would do it again. I, I had to do it. She also would sometimes be like, Yeah, of course I felt bad, but you didn't feel, you, it was like weird the way she said it. Um, there's a moment at the end of her, the episode that's about the, the slow burn episode about her. There's a moment at the very end when she's speaking to Leon about Monica and how she just wishes Monica would understand um, why she had to do it. And on its face, that statement is bizarre because of course, why would she even ask Monica to understand it? It's not fair, but I hear so much pain in Linda's voice that I, um, that I really carried me through and led me to like the point of like a psychotic break when I was writing 10, because I felt like I wanted to somehow express that. I think Linda carried remorse to answer your question for the rest of her life. I don't know how much she expressed that remorse. I think this was a not a psychopath. I think this was a human being who um, whose frustration and anger. And I think also in to some degree, yes, a bit of her actual concern for Monica, but of course her desire to be seen. And there was some malevolent motivation. There's some bad motivations there too. I think it led her to do this terrible thing. And in my belief is that Linda knew that it was a terrible thing to do, but had a hard time facing that um, for the rest of her life. That's my belief. But again, if you have four more hours, we can, we can. That
1: <laughs> no, I mean, I think it comes off to, you know, she has, there are a couple scenes where she says, you know, she's my friend, she's my friend. And I think there's one point where the FBI is just like, what do you, you know, even look at her, like, she's your friend, but you did this thing to her, but you can, she's, she says it with such conviction. I mean, I, like, you know, and she says it enough times. I'm like, Oh God, she really believes that she did this thing for her friend to help her, you know, get out of this pain but it sort of can't, you know, it's like, does she ever really recognize what she actually did to this person? And, and yeah. it's complicated.
0: It's really complicated. And, you know, it's that thing where you, there's a bit of truth to like the fact that Monica was in a bad situation and how often in our lives have we told ourselves, well, I have to do this thing, but there, you know, because we, we can't face what our real motivations are, which of course for Linda involves a bit of, putting herself at the center of her own political thriller, which is basically what this show is, you know, (laughs) her own political, you know, and all that stuff. But I, um, um, it it is intended to be quite complicated and and it's it's never going to totally match up and it's never going to totally make sense because, um, the actual actions don't totally make sense. You know,
1: I'm going to shift a little bit. I, you know, I imagine writing Hillary and Bill Clinton couldn't have been easy either. I mean, obviously they're incredibly well-known public political figures still to this day, um, you know, did you have challenges in how to write these characters? Did you take any liberties?
0: Yeah, of course it's challenging because, um, being incredibly powerful, uh, politicians and being the, like, there's a, I, I don't have access in the same way to what happened behind closed doors. You know, you can go, aside from like the Linda trip tapes, there's a, a ton of interviews that came out in 1998 with like Linda's hairdresser or you know, Jake Tapper went on a date with Monica and he wrote about that. And so you can get these accounts of like Monica, Linda and Paula Jones that, um, people who got up close and saw them in vulnerable moments and et cetera, that's not going to happen with the president and first lady. So I think my, my approach was to start with, like my approach always was to be oriented in Monica and Paula and Linda's point of view. And so that no matter who they are, characters are only activated when, you know, the, the sort of growing, um, Friendship, and then you know uh, the betrayal, uh, you know, of, of, and the, the taping. When that when all when that starts to sort of speed up and lands on Hillary lands in Hillary Clinton's life. Now she's a character. When it lands on Ken Starr's life, now he is a character more. Um, you know, this is not a, a biopic of the Clintons. It's about this crisis. Right. So in that way, Bill Clinton is kind of in the girlfriend role in this show. We meet him through we, Monica is talking about him with Linda we, we are in Monica's point of view. So I always was like, sort of writing him. It's this part of his life that I'm depicting, you know, we're not seeing him deal with like Hillary and healthcare and all that stuff at that time, you know um, we can understand the pressures on him. And I think Clive does a wonderful job playing um, the anger and frustration and sort of sometimes self-pity of someone who feels like, his, you know, he, he's, he's boxed in. in. Um, but I, I, I read their, you know, I I did a lot of research on the Clintons. I read their memoirs. I read like some, some, there's some papers of a close Hillary Clinton friends that were quite useful to us in writing later episodes where we see a lot more Hillary and get into her personal life more. I wouldn't say I took liberties as much as I took all the information I could in, um, especially also with Flora Birnbaum, who um, is a, a great writer who, for episode eight, which has a lot of Clintons in it, Flora and I spoke a lot about, and she pointed me toward a lot of different sources on the Clintons as I said, it's always often through a couple of layers and then you do the, you best, you do the best job you can, as you always do as a writer is to write what it probably felt like to be in the situation within the character that you've created. Um, you know, I, um, I never felt, I never was intending to sort of give people behind the scenes gossip on the Clintons. So I didn't feel that I was like trying to meet that need. They just became sort of people to me in the context of the story. Um, And they will, they will really take center stage sort of in a later episode that I won't sort of get into, but, um, yeah, it was, it was a normal, of course it's research first, but it is, it it was a, you know, I, I, there's so many crazy conspiracies about the Clintons. There's so there's so many wrong beliefs about that marriage, I think about who they are. I obviously don't know the truth myself, but given everything I took in, I think, um, I approached it, I think the most truthful way that I, that I could. Um, with the most humanity that I could as as their lives start to get really, of course, their lives do have a, a moment of real threat um, from this crisis.
1: I was really drawn in the, the scenes where we see Monica and Bill together, and they're pretty intimate scenes. And I really loved the choice you made that they don't feel overly salacious or overly... Um, exposed in a way, but you certainly, you can feel the power dynamic. I mean, you can feel all the tension, but we don't necessarily have to see it all laid out there. I, I thought that was a pretty brilliant choice. Um, can you talk a little bit about, about that? I, I like, I'm obsessed with how
0: prestige television is really just like a delivery mechanism for sex scenes actually. in a lot of the time, I think it's really interesting. Um, it was I, That was not something I was interested in doing with the show. And also just to say it, the one thing people over a certain age know about the scandal is explicitly the sex because that's what people consumed. And that was right. what Ken Starr put in his re- report. I think quite intentionally um, the way that report is written is still very shocking because it's, you can write about sex in a way that doesn't pull you in. It just seems kind of like you can describe things. You have the choice of the way you describe things. And he described, he described them in a way that made them very vivid. Um, so I was not interested in replaying that. Um, yes. Out of respect for Monica, but it's beyond, like, you know, it, I never even conceived of writing a sexual version, like a very sexual version of this story. I was interested in the power dynamic. I think sometimes in the room together, uh, in the writing of it, I I would adopt, as always you adopt the character's point of view. At the time, as Monica's written, I don't want to speak for her, she's written um, a wonderful piece in Vanity Fair about how she sort of reconsidered um, the notion of a consensual relationship in the context of acknowledging that it is an abuse of power now. Um, But I wrote those scenes, you know, I think mainly again from her point of view, which was someone who was really into this and really into this interaction emotionally as well as everything else. Um, That was just the approach that I wanted to take. I wasn't, um, you know, I I certainly understand an an appetite for, um, you know, like the sort of more salacious approach to the story. I just was never going to be the writer for that. I like to not give people what they entirely want sometimes. (laughs) sometimes. And I also think that like, it's frankly like, you know, I, I just, in this specific story, that is a story that has already been told it. That's just fundamentally true. That is a story that's been told. I'm not interested in retelling that that's not uncovering anything new. Um, and that's also not like, um, I think again, forcing us into the sort of like the texture of these women's lives and how trapped they were in their homes and how stuck they were in these dynamics was sort of what I was until it burst through and suddenly the FBI is involved. That was sort of the story I was interested in telling.
1: Definitely. And you know, I think, you know, obviously it's an incredibly complicated power dynamic between them. There's a phrase that Phil says multiple times, like, I thought you were a good girl, or are you yeah. a good girl? <laughs> and every time he says that line, I feel like I get this, like, cut in my gut. I'm like, mm-hmm. like you know, as, as a woman entrepreneur, I've been, you know, called, oh, you girl can't do this, whatever. And, and that word particularly is just such a such a kick in the gut um is that something you've ever experienced is that where it came from or was that something
0: yeah are you kidding I mean of course I mean like I don't know I, people hate women they just do it's okay I, I, it's not okay but it's like that's just the reality we live in it makes life a little more exciting that like we have to like you know I think exist as exist with some sort of uh I think under the conditions of a double standard um you know I think that like the reaction to Monica itself in, in our culture and world culture was like an example of sort of ancient misogyny, just like taking yeah. her apart. Um, I, um, I, I, I know I have to say, I, I never was trying to like make people angry or uncomfortable <laughs> with the show. I do see, I do see with like some delight that I've like somehow pulled, <laughs> pulled like the fun, like American crime story into that feeling of just people being like, but like, um, yeah, of course I, you know, there's many times I've worked with people. It happens all the time when you're, especially a writer, as a writer specifically, I think it happens all the time that you hear, especially, I, I tend to write about unlikable women. Um, and in this case, I'm talking about like my play, Dry Powder, you know, is about like a really mean finance lady who I really, who I had a lot of affection for. And I would see audience, you know, and I, I, the way people react to that character always says a lot to me. Um, and the way people talk to me about my own work often is reveals a lot about how they feel, um, about, uh, about women. And obviously, yes, of course, it's like, you know, what woman, what female writer has not felt at times, heard from people at times that like, you know, um, you, uh, how much harder it is to be a man in certain contexts or how much, you know, how, how undesirable men are as, 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 like hireable writers these days or whatever, which is like not true. Um, but like that stuff, you, you, you hear about this all the time, you know, it just is part of the atmosphere that we live in, you know, and and that's part of what I was doing with this show, frankly, is like what happens when women just have to live in that poison water for their whole lives, you know, I mean, we can't, we don't live in water. We're not fish like horrible metaphor, but, um, that's part of, I think what I I I have so much affection for um, Linda Tripp as a character who kind of carries all of that um, through. And the tragedy of Linda, she doesn't, she doesn't at all attack the source of her pain. She ends up hurting someone who's younger than her and quite vulnerable.
1: No, definitely. And I, I, again, I just think that's what the, the misogyny is. It's an undercurrent throughout the whole thing. And again, but it, but you're not hitting it over the head. You're not overtly sexual. You're not doing these things that I think you would think about seeing when you come into this, but it's, but it's all there, um, in just this sort of undercurrent. So you, you, you feel it without having it. So like over the head. And I think that's such a unique way of, of portraying the story and and then makes you feel something and see things really differently. Um, which I think is so great. Um, well, we should talk about the media obviously has a huge part of this, um, you know, mass media, the public shaming, um, you know, something that I, think is still with us today, you know, especially when it comes to women. So how did you kind of want to present the media during this time? I was interested. I mean, I think that
0: it's obviously more in the back half of the season. I mean, I was so interested in the fact that like Monica and Linda are kind of stuck in their home so much. is a very intentional choice. And so the TV is on because it's the 90s. And so you're watching like broadcast TV or cable. And um, by the end of the story, they both are inside that TV. Like they're both on t- <laughs> Like, you know, it's yeah. like a bizarre um. Life experience, which, like, obviously brought in, you know, like in, in tragic and like horrifying circumstances, uh, especially for Monica. But um, obviously, I I mean, I don't know if you agree, but like, I mean, to some degree, we have been in this period the past five years of reappraising, especially in the 1990s, the way we've um, young women were sort of de limbed by our culture in the media, whether it's Britney Spears or Monica. So, I was, that did feel like something we'd already started talking about a bit. So, I wasn't interested in only focusing on that. I also am mindful of like blaming the media when it's actually all of us who were consuming this. You know, I mean, not me. I was like a preteen, but I, but like, you know, I, I probably would have been, you know, I mean, any adult in there, you know, people either kind of condoning it or, you know, stopping their work days to like gossip about the Star Report. And um, I think I, w- I was interested in how that would feel from Monica's point of view. I felt like it was important to depict this period in her life where she couldn't go outside. That was her life. It's like, a, it's a weird, it's frankly a weird thing to write, um, especially for a TV film, even as a play, it'd be more appropriate as a play maybe, because it's like you're trapped in your home and you're just on TV. Um, but I felt, so I think there's a claustrophobia to that. I was interested in, de- in depicting from her point of view. And then obviously, yes, I wanted to sort of confront the audience with the things that were said about Monica on late night TV and you know, comedians, some who we have now, as a culture turned away from, um, some who are still quite relevant. And then, um, even the straight news media and like morning shows that you would think would be a little more neutral. The, the casual way Monica was spoken about was important for me to depict, even though I don't, I, I wasn't interested in, it, it did feel like that was something that we had, um, we had talked about. So my task was how to make that feel rooted in her character, I think, to, del- to deliver that story, because, um, you know, It was something that had a profound, profound effect on Monica Lewinsky's life, of course. And I, by the way, I agree with you that I think that if this were to happen again, I, I question how much we've moved on from, and I've said this in the press before, but I, I, I've questioned how much we've actually changed our ways. Um, were the situation exactly the same? Were our president of our party, if he was under attack in this way, we felt he was under attack in this way, how would people really respond? I think we like to tell ourselves we've changed, but I, I do question that a bit, um, even post-social uh, even in the, the age of social media,
1: well, yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking when you were saying that. It's now even you're able to get uh, more news or any kind of information so much quicker, even than just you know uh, things blow up so much faster and and quicker and and in so many different forms now with social media, YouTube, all the different ways that which you can just hold your phone up and say what you feel and put it out to the world. I, I, I wondered the same thing watching it. It felt it it didn't feel. Like I was watching something from the nineties. It felt really? It's one of those yeah. moments that felt pretty current to me. Yeah. I, some of the scenes that really struck me were the, I think it's, the, the, there are a couple of times where Monica and Linda have lunch together um, and especially that first one, they're just sort of these kind of just intimate two people sitting at a table having lunch, kind of discussing regular things, or even their phone calls often, like, you know, talking about working out or, you know, what they're gonna wear, um, you know, again, really humanizing. Um, but but those, those lunch scenes seem to be important. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that.
0: I mean, with the first one, I obviously had the task of like, this was a classic office, like work friendship. Most of us have been in that. And like, how do you eventually become close enough that you share details of your life? Um, of course, as a writer, I had to condense multiple months of getting to know each other into one lunch, you know, um, I think for the first one, the first episode is called exiles because both Monica and Linda, um, were sent to the Pentagon against their will. And so you have this feeling of this sort of like this gathering place for women who have been like ejected from, um, from the white house. Um, and so that to me felt like a way for both of them, for for Monica to feel a comfort in speaking to someone who also didn't want to be there. Um, part of the idea of that scene, you know, Linda, I think immediately, and this is true, I think recognized that it was, she, she noticed that Monica came in at a certain job and given her age, I think Linda had, as she said, like, I forget how she described it. I'm sure it was somehow funny and ridiculous, but like Linda talked about, um, she, she, it it, it made her curious about what connections Monica might have, you know? So for Linda, the wheels are turning already, I think, at the end of episode one about who, where this young person comes from. Um, and then, yeah, I think the, the reality is when you listen to the tapes and I think in researching this, Monica and Linda talked about dieting and working out a lot. And that is me writing. That is not the show making fun of that or commenting on them. It's the ways that women feel like they have to like literally make themselves smaller. And that this anger that the anger about being this sort of like invisible secretary or, um, you know, the sort of, uh, an overlooked sort of, you know, desk occupant, it's just like some human beings at a desk that you just walk by, you don't even notice them because you're going to see someone who actually matters that anger often can turn inward. So, you know, a, it simply was a, do- a documented fact they talked about dieting and working out a lot. I feel for them in those moments because I have, I've been there and I understand that. And I also, um, I find it, it was a connection point, you know, I mean, there was a, there was a sort of commiseration in that, that frankly did underlie a lot of their connection, and also like there's a the thing about loneliness that when you're talking to somebody, you need something to talk about, and it's not always entirely about the content of it. You know, it was it was their form of bonding, just like two guys talking about like the New York Giants at work. You know, that was their their means of doing that. You know, so it was a um, a basis for a friendship, but and also a very something that I noticed they talked about a ton. Um, but I also do think I I feel for them that is this need to change yourself as though they are the problem or the way that their appearance, their physical appearance is the problem. Because of course the, the culture makes um, women feel that that is always the problem. It's their fault. It's your fault. You're invisible. It's your fault that you've been kicked out of the white house. It's your fault that Bill Clinton's not calling you. Um, and that's the one, the one sort of area, the one zone of control is the body was something that I um, uh, was intentionally sort of putting in there, not for comedy's sake, though. It's it's it, it, it is a story that starts to have increasing high stakes and like legal stakes and political stakes and eventually almost takes down the head of the state of the most powerful country in the world like that 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 the the fact that that was the texture of the conversations is fascinating fascinating to me and it was ridiculed a lot in the 90s to say that monica and linda are stupid that's not at all the intention of it here and and i I don't think it, it plays that way with their especially with their wonderful performances it's just um, that sort of is what, that is like a, one of the few zones sort of left to, to women to talk about. And also 90s diet culture was just crazy, right? Like all the sort of, nuts, like how um, all the sort of low fat stuff everywhere. I was, you know, fascinated by that. Definitely.
1: Well, we talked a little bit, um, obviously you come from a playwriting background. How different was it to approach writing a series? I mean, obviously there's so many differences, length, there's writer's rooms, there's, I mean, it's, it's very, very different, you know, how, how was it for you? And, and were there any kind of challenges?
0: Yeah. I mean, uh, one thing I really miss is like an audience. Like I'm really, I'm really, <laughs> like, I have to admit that it's kind of great to like, look at, I I, I feel like I have to sort of like see how what people are saying on Twitter. Cause I just miss the feeling, you know, I've been in my, I've been in theaters for my plays when it's a, a play that I feel I, I you know, I always like basically like despise all of my work cause I'm self-loathing, but like, it's a play that I feel like good about I, I feel kind of good about and it's a production that goes that was great and the cast you know the actors are really good and you can feel that in the room when it's really working um and I've even been in plays where like I you know I've had plays where I I didn't figure out the script or whatever I, I don't feel like my play totally works but even then there's something about being in the room with an audience and feeling that that gives you some like closure so my version of that now is like just like reading tweets from around America which is kind of great to be honest with you like I you know like, I I like but it's you know it, it is so I miss that. I really miss it I really, really miss an audience because that's actually really hard for me. i I love to hide behind a pillar in like the um you know uh, the martinson or whatever yeah. theater, theater <laughs> in the public or you know I remember it being a production in like um in the alley in Houston once and it was like, it was like this huge house they had and it was like all these Houstonians like watching my finance play and like that is actually what you're writing for you know to feel that um the good and the bad the the silent attention or the obviously obviously all I want is like laughs but then the uncomfortable moments when you you know you can feel an audience like i remember tommy kale once said he he like hates a cough because people only <laughs> cough when they're bored which i'm like okay tommy but i was like but it's true you can feel people shifting yeah. and thinking about like what restaurant they're going to go to anyway i miss that um of course, I mean, like it's a lot more money on it. There's a lot more people involved. Like I, I, you know, there's there's a, there's way more. Uh, there are more producers, obviously. In this case, I'm, I've also only produced like off Broadway, so I don't really know what I'm, I'm sure. I'm, you know, Broadway might be closer in some ways. Um, some things are surprisingly the same. You know, I mean, actors are working with actors is like it was one sort of early area of familiarity for me. You know. Um, I missed like the feeling of a theater rehearsal, I guess, where you sit at a table for a week with a new play and really talk about it. I did miss that. Um, I learned a lot about, I think how to, I wish I could do certain things again. Cause I think I learned a lot about how much I could actually in TV exert myself as I could in the theater, which is to be like, yeah, here's like the kind of cigarettes that maybe should be like on Linda's table here, or, like, you know, or, or whatever, talking to like, the props department or, you know, um, all those people. I, I, you know, I think there's, there's so many different departments and stuff that the writer can interact with. It's, it's a very different thing. Um, I mean, I I could go on about that for a long time. In many ways, it's quite different. And obviously the nature of serial storytelling is so it's just way more writing, you know, um, is, uh, ask demands something different of you. Um, and in this case, we actually had like kind of the pressure of an air date as well. So that deadline feels very different in some ways from, a single like 92 page play that you know it's an open at one point but um, you know that I will say I think theater does give you some good preparation though because first of all opening nights, opening nights, so you're always there during previews trying to figure out the part of your play that doesn't work, um, the reviews for a play if it's a new play, I really are about the playwright. Like it's you that the New York Times is writing about, you know, you, you isn't me. So I've really been through the sort of the ups and downs of that and all of the intensity of that, I I think do prepare you for all the chaotic reactions that something can have, you know, Um, this also just took way long. I was talking to somebody about how much, this was just a long, especially with COVID, this was a very long period of time. So there was like an intensity to it and a connection that I had to, I think some of the characters that was quite, um, quite intense because I enjoyed writing them and, or, you know, I was like, I, and I, I thought about all the scenes I wish I could write, you know, like it's, it's much more expansive in a way that a play is obviously the demand of a mini plays at least is that there be, they'd be quite tight, you know?
1: Definitely. And, and you mentioned audience and I'm sure waiting week after week too, as things are coming undone and seeing, seeing all the tweets, but what ultimately do you hope the audience comes away with when they've finally seen all 10 episodes?
0: Oh, I don't know. I mean, I, I can't really answer that question. I think that like, I have um, obviously like top of mind has always been that that Monica Lewinsky herself feels good about this and feels like, and feels that she has been represented. There's a moral moral underpinning to this whole project for me that I've never had before. I don't really think of myself. I don't really think about morality when I write at all. Uh, (laughs) So I don't like, I don't, but this did have that for that reason. Um, And so that impulse, I think a a broader understanding of that, her feeling like um, this has helped in her, her, the project that she has led her own, her own, I think, um, reemergence that she has directed herself as a public figure, that this contributes to that at all will be really important to me. Um, And that aside, I don't know. I think that this show is, um, there is something I think probably, I, I, I know a little bit what I've done, which is like, you know, it is, as you say a show about the being in these sort of oppressive rooms with these women, you know, and, and I don't, you know, I think there is a discomfort and unease with their lives at the start and then their lives at the end. You know um, I think in Monica's case, something she was put through something that's really unconventional to write. Frankly, it's so um, it's unrelenting attack from the government and the media. And, and it just doesn't, it feels un, like it, as I was writing the first the final episode, it just feels like it doesn't, um, it feels like there has no end. So um, it's, it is a bit—it's brutal and uncomfortable, and I'm okay with people feeling that discomfort. You know, it is not a—it's not intended to be a fun crime romp. It is a story about, I think, desperation and pain, and then eventually um, a real—a real tragedy.
1: Absolutely, Sarah. Thank you so much for for joining me. And uh, Sarah, thank you again. Thank you so much, Randy. I appreciate it.
0: Thank you for tuning in for today's episode. Series Fest is a nonprofit organization, and our work would not be possible without our incredible board of directors, staff, and partners who make programs like this podcast possible. We have ongoing competitions, initiatives, and mentorship programs year-round, so please check us out at seriesfest.com and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to stay
1: up to date on announcements. This episode was edited by Neil Trulio with original music by Adam Westbrook.